I'm Bonnie Glazer, Managing Director of the Indo-Pacific Program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Today, we're delving into the complex issue of critical mineral supply chains and China's role in those supply chains. Critical minerals are mineral resources that are essential to the economy and to national security, have no viable substitutes, yet face a high risk of supply chain disruption. Critical minerals are used for many different purposes, including the production of advanced electronics, weapon systems, manufacturing equipment, and cutting-edge medical devices. They're indispensable for the transition to low-carbon energy sources. Last year, the Secretary of the Interior, with the aid of the U.S. Geological Survey, published a list of 50 critical minerals. China dominates global critical mineral supply chains, accounting for approximately 60% of worldwide production and 85% of processing capacity. However, the United States and Europe are taking steps to build out their own ability to mine, process, and manufacture critical minerals. To discuss the implications of China's role in critical mineral supply chains and the responses of the United States and its global partners, I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Abigail Wolf, who is Vice President and Director of the Ambassador Alfred Hoffman Jr. Center for Critical Mineral Strategy at SAFE, Securing America's Future Energy, which is a nonprofit advancing transformative transportation technology to enhance energy security. Thanks for joining the China Global Podcast, Abby. Thanks for having me, Bonnie. Happy to be here. So let's start at a, with a broad question. Can you explain what are the potential vulnerabilities and risks that we and our allies face with our existing overdependence on China for some of these critical minerals? So Bonnie, we really see this as a much larger threat than one country's ability to cut off one particular mineral commodity versus another. We really see this as a much larger transition from an economy, a worldwide economy, that is predominantly based on fossil fuels to one that will be predominantly based on the materials and minerals that are needed for some of our key technologies and industrial sectors. I really see us on the verge of this next industrial revolution, on this precipice to something that, you know, I like to characterize as sort of our Jetsons moment, that, you know, we're we're moving to something that's going to require, you know, um, all of the, the copper and manganese and lithium and graphite uh, to create the technologies that are needed for advanced, not just, you know, transportation technologies that we all like to talk about, uh, electric vehicles and 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 even clean energy applications, but also all of the really high-tech communications and technology applications and even defense. So it's really so much more than just uh, one critical mineral commodity over another. It's really this move toward this next industrial revolution. But in your testimony to the Senate, and of course, in many of your writings, you have highlighted China's role in critical mineral supply chains. So maybe you can explain a bit about what are the minerals that the United States and Europe are highly dependent on China for? What are the products that some of those minerals are are used for? And why is that a problem that we have to rely on China? And of course, it's not just China's own production. It is the fact that China is so dominant in the import of these minerals from countries like in Africa. 
The reason why we care that China is so dominant in the supply chain is because we're talking about this next industrial revolution. It's not just a race for the raw materials and the ability to extract and process them, but it really has so much more to do with the downstream industries upon which these raw materials and minerals um, form the foundation of. So it's really their ability to um, capture that innovation and expertise that comes from their ability to control these downs, these more upstream markets. So because they are able to, you know, attract the minerals and materials to their shores, they're essentially attempting to create their own Silicon Valley, which is something that we've done very well in the United States. Because they have the processing capacity for, say, cobalt on their shores, they're able to more easily attract the cathode manufacturing and the battery manufacturing that's needed needed for this next next industrial revolution because they are able to attract and have the rare earth deposits and you know more fully process them on their shores they are also able to attract the permanent magnet manufacturing as well it's really this much larger whole of industrial strategy and because they've been able to more efficiently vertically integrate and capture all of these um, critically advanced markets, um, they're able to sort of dial up and dial down the different export quotas. And um, but it's so much more than just the export quotas of, you know, cutting off a supply of rare earths that they did in 2010 to Japan. It really has so much more to do with um, like as countries have made these commitments to become more clean energy focused and hit these zero emission targets. And as countries, you know, try to solve climate change or, you know, just advance technologically, um, say hypothetically, Bonnie, that, you know, the United States has set these clean energy targets and say in 2050, uh, the majority of our grid is made up of solar panels. And, you know, let's just say that, you know, hypothetically, we're going to install those solar panels in like large swaths at a time. And as those solar panels, you know, reach their end of life and we don't know how to make solar panels in the United States, it won't just be that China can cut off our supply of gallium or something needed for those solar panels. It's that we will be fully reliant on China to replace all of those solar panels. And, and partly why the reason we don't know how to make solar panels is because we don't have access to the raw materials, whereas China does. So it's this much more complicated web and entanglement of like, getting the cheaper materials so that you can attract the crucial um, expertise because it's cheaper to get those materials where they are, and then also being able to innovate on those materials as you are able to collect them. So it, it's such a bigger question than just, you know, who, what does it mean if China can, is dominant in these mineral supply chains? Maybe you can explain a bit about why the United States has been so slow in developing its own domestic mining industry. I was reading an article in the New York Times that said that a new mine can take more than 20 years to reach full production. And I know that the Mountain Pass Rare Earth Mine in California had closed after a toxic waste spill and didn't reopen for years, but is now trying to ramp up production again. So what what is the state of the U.S. domestic mining industry and what are the prospects for its expansion? And is this like really essential in order for the United States to, to compete with China and also to be in a position to make this new energy transition? 
So Bonnie, the, the U.S. mining sector is going to be an important part of how the United States and our allies are able to overcome our reliance on China for the minerals and materials. But at the same time, U.S. mining is never going to be the be-all, end-all answer to this problem. And that is because, you know, the United States, number one, doesn't have enough reserves in order to support its key industries that rely on these mineral materials. For example, for something like nickel, which is really needed for batteries, um, we have approximately, you know, 0.3 of global nickel reserves. I, I will put an asterisk by that and that the United States has is historically undermapped. And so we actually don't exactly know how much nickel we do have. Um, but at the same time, you know, our key industries serve a global market. And so we're going to need more mineral materials beyond what any one country will ever be able to produce. Um, getting mines off the ground in the United States and in any, you know, economically uh, rich country that has moved more toward consuming than producing is going to be difficult. Uh, but I would also say that it's not just difficult in those countries, that NIMBYism really exists everywhere. And that, you know, as we're making this shift to a more minerals-based economy, we're also making a shift to an economy that the, a lot of the population would really like to be much cleaner. And so that means that we're putting a, a microscope over these industries that historically have not had you know, this much attention. And, you know, especially in the United States, where things have become so Amazon-like, where, you know, we're able to sort of click a button and something appears, we've become so divorced from what it actually takes to build something. Um, and, and the minerals and materials that it takes to, to create, you know, the things that you're getting from that click of that button. And so we're really going through, and we'll, we'll continue to go through, and, and hopefully we can do it much faster, these these growing pains of, you know, if you would like these clean energy technologies, if you would like these advanced anything technologies, that you're going to need much more extraction. And so should some of that extraction take place in the United States? Certainly. We should not only be thinking about, you know, where in, in you know, uh, underdeveloped or, or lower economic countries can we be sourcing these mineral materials from? I think that all of us sort of intrinsically can say, you know, that doesn't really seem quite fair and also doesn't really make much sense if we're thinking about this from a national security perspective. Um, but at the same time, we can't get stuck in what I like to call the thought eddy of domestic mining. We need to be walking and chewing gum at the same time, uh, not just focused on U.S production, but also casting a much larger net among allies and the whole world to create what we at SAFE like to refer to as the global race to the top to diversify where we're getting mineral sources from. Um, but I'll also contradict myself there, Bonnie, or at the same time, you know, geologic deposits exist where they exist. Um, going back to that definition of reserves, um, it is something that is, it is a known deposit, but it's also economically viable. And and often, you know, the most economically viable deposits are the, you know, the highest grade and those occur in certain locations. But as we become more desperate for these mineral materials, that 
that net, that tent might widen for what becomes economically viable um, because we just will become more desperate for them. And, you know, people like to say you could even extract lithium from seawater if you wanted to. Or, you know, uh, another third rail is talking about, you know, the nodules that exist on the seafloor that are highly enriched in cobalt, nickel and manganese and other things. You know, they call them a battery in a rock. But, um, you know, something like that historically has hasn't been seen as economically viable. But today, as you talk more about, you know, the, the nimbyism that we're talking about here, Bonnie, uh, the community engagement and indigenous engagement um, that often, you know, come with, uh, importantly, but, you know, it often can lead to slowing down a project might not exist out in the middle of the ocean. So, you know, there are there are going to be trade-offs here and what might not be economically viable now might be economically viable in the future just given all the entanglements that are involved in terrestrial mining. The issue of processing some of these minerals, I think has gotten a lot of attention because it, at least in the past my understanding is that it has really been a process that produces a lot of pollution and China has been the country that has been willing to suffer the environmental consequences. So, for example, the Mountain Pass rare earth mine that I that I mentioned earlier, which reopened in 2018, I believe that even though it is ramped up mining, it continues to send those minerals to China for processing. Are there new technologies that are coming online that will solve this problem? Has the U.S. started to process some of these minerals or other countries in a more environmentally friendly way? So the United States and others are certainly banking on our ability to process mineral materials in a way that is cheaper, cleaner, and less energy intensive than it is currently done in China. And Bonnie, yes, China controls anywhere between 60 and 100% of all the minerals processing for the battery minerals and materials that we're going to need to successfully transition to this minerals-based economy. Um, you bring up rare earths, though, and I would just like to note that rare earths are sort of a, a different beast unto themselves as well, especially when it comes to processing. Uh, rare earths is a bit of a misnomer. Uh, rare earths aren't actually rare. They are actually more crustily abundant than, say, copper uh, within the earth's crust. But they're called rare because they occur in concentrations that are much more diffuse, much less economically viable to extract. And so because of that, rare earths are often produced as a byproduct or co-product of another material. Uh, for example, um, China's largest rare earths mine is actually an iron mine. Um, and so that mine produced 90% of the world's rare earths in the early 2000s, but again, was primarily an iron mine, not mined for rare earths. Um, when you process rare earths, it's incredibly difficult to pull out exactly the element that you're trying to get. And, and that's what they are, rare earth elements. They are a group on the periodic table known as the lanthanides, and there are around 17 of them. And they're all very chemically similar. And so if you're just trying to pull out, say, neodymium or something that you need for, you know, the permanent magnets um, uh, that are needed for electric vehicle motors or wind turbine motors, you have to then, you know, push away the other 16 elements outside of that, which is difficult. And often these rare earths often occur in conjunction with radioactive elements, whether that's uranium or thorium. And so when you're when you're 
processing and, and you know, trying to tease out one element that you have, you have to safely store that radioactive element that comes with it. And so in the United States, we thankfully, you know, have uh, our, our Environmental Protection Agency and others that make sure that you go out and you're, you know, properly lining those ponds to make sure that that radioactive wastewater isn't seeping into the environment. Whereas, you know, in, in the early days, at least of, of rare earth processing, um, the Chinese facility at Bayano Bo was just simply taking that that radioactive effluent and putting it into a, a tailings pond right next to the facility. Um, and so that's something that you that in that you know wasn't lined properly. It was getting into the water systems there. Um, so that that is not something that you would be able to do um, in the United States. But um, I think, as you noted uh, in your opening, Bonnie, one of the previous lives of the Mountain Pass deposit, and I would say that you know in its current iteration, you know doing things very safely. Um, but yeah, 600,000 gallons or so of radioactive wastewater was spilled into the into the desert. And so that on top of China flooding the market with lower cost materials made it, you know, very difficult um, for, for the rare earth industry to keep going in the United States. But but yes, right now you have MP Materials, which is doing a really great job trying to remine, you know, those existing that existing deposit and those tailings and waste that already exist around the deposit. Um, and they're, you know, working with the US government and, you know, have a deal with General Motors as well to move all the way down the supply chain from the extraction of the rare earths all the way through to magnet production. Um, but in terms of other processing in the United States, uh, the U.S. government, of course, has within the bipartisan infrastructure law uh, injected a huge amount of capital to help U.S. companies increase processing capacity. There's around six to seven billion dollars right now in battery material processing, manufacturing and recycling grants, of which, you know, about three billion dollars has already been granted to a number of companies that are trying to figure out ways to process these materials more cleanly. Um, one of those includes, you know, uh, Talon, uh, which has the Tamarack nickel deposit in Minnesota, and they're using that funding to develop uh, nickel processing capacity in North Dakota right now. Um, and there are also programs within the Department of Energy National Labs, where they're able to help some of these more entrepreneurial uh, I would say more on the academic side uh, of, of ideas for processing and try to help them bridge the valley of death into something that is more commercial. Um, it's those kinds of programs that we probably need to be investing in more and, you know, rather than creating something from scratch, uh, beefing them up to leverage the work that they're already doing. I wanted to drill down into two minerals, which China has announced that it may impose export controls on. And of course, that's gallium and germanium. So why are these two minerals critical? What are the potential impacts on the United States and Japan, on our allies in Europe and other countries, if China really even bans their export, which I think it's unlikely to do, but it may, right now it says it's going to require licenses. And we know, as you alluded to earlier, that in 2010, China did attempt to cut off rare earth exports to Japan. So is this something we should be worried about? 
Gallium and germanium are two critical minerals. Um, they are used in semiconductor manufacturing, but also in, you know, solar cells and high-tech military applications. The United States is currently 100% import reliant on gallium and more than 50% import reliant on germanium. Um, China is, of course, a number one import source for those two minerals, but uh, we also get gallium from Germany and Japan, and we also get germanium also from Germany and Belgium. The reason why people aren't, you know, so up in a frenzy about these two particular metals is that they are primarily mined as a byproduct of zinc mining, but also you can get gallium as a byproduct of aluminum mining and copper mining as well. And, you know, while the United States doesn't have many bauxite deposits, we do have many zinc and copper deposits, um, you know, most notably some zinc deposits up in Alaska, Tennessee, and Washington, I believe, you know, have high, um, gallium and germanium um, content that we would be able to call upon if needed. Uh, furthermore, um, silicon can often be used as an alternative to germanium um, in some electronic applications. And so I think that is also helping to assuage, you know, some of our fears. Um, I think what China is trying to do here is a bit of saber rattling, though. It is a direct response to the United States uh, implementing some very strict chip sanctions on China. And and China is saying, you know, you're going to inflict this kind of a, an export restriction on us. And so we then are going to, you know, a tit for tat implement and, and, and you know, flip the switch that we that they have access to, which is more on the upstream. Um, I think this could actually have an adverse effect on China, actually, because it's sort of pushing everybody even more toward what they're trying to do right now, which is to de-risk or decouple whichever word that you want to use from Chinese supply chains for the critical minerals materials for these exact industries. So if anything, it could very much backfire on China because you have everybody, you know, ganging up on Chinese supply chains right now is a very bipartisan issue in Congress. And so you have many people pointing, pointing to this saying, look at like, this is what they're very much willing to do. It just proves our point even more that we need to be expanding our ability to counteract any of these moves that they may have. And I would say, Bonnie, the beauty of, of critical minerals and switching to a more minerals-based economy versus a fossil fuel-based economy is that, you know, the, the effect of cutting off something like germanium and gallium isn't as immediate as the effect that OPEC or Russia say could have on cutting off our supply of oil. Because, you know, oil is the thing that we're using to burn energy. But, you know, when you're talking about batteries, you're talking about semiconductors, these are just the materials used to build the thing. So it doesn't have an immediate impact on our using the things that we already have. It impacts our ability to produce more of those things. So it's, it's not an immediate impact. It is a, in some ways, a more nefarious, slower burn because it will affect our long-term economic viability and our long-term ability to innovate and compete. But in the short term, it, it isn't such a big deal. You know, it's interesting that the germanium and gallium case, I and mean, I completely agree with you, may really backfire and accelerate our transition to more of a minerals-based economy. But of course, it was like 13 years ago that 
China did take these measures to try and stop rare earth exports to Japan. And that was done basically to punish the Japanese who had detained the Chinese captain of a fishing trawler that had been involved in an incident near this disputed territory, these Senkaku Islands. At that time, that was it, it was a real wake-up call, and Tokyo apparently took really drastic steps to shift a significant percentage of its rare earth import mix from China to other countries. I believe that included Mongolia and Australia and Vietnam. But apparently the United States and the European Union did not really take steps to diversify. So I wonder if you have any insights as to why we didn't and whether we can really learn from the Japanese experience. The issue really sparkled and faded away after 2010 and 11. When that happened, you know, everybody freaked out. Rare earths was a really hot topic. People were talking more about critical minerals. But what we saw at that time, Bonnie, and why I think it really faded away is because there was no downstream demand signal for those things quite yet. Rare earths are used in very, very small uh, volumes in these things. You know, when we talk about things like lithium and EV batteries, which, you know, now we have a very strong downstream demand signal for, you're talking about tens of kilograms in a battery. But the amount of rare earths in something is much, much smaller. And so, you know, and, and that, again, was sort of the, the key issue, because back in 2010 and 2011, there really, there weren't many EVs out on the road. We, you know, we were just talking about the clean energy economy. Um, you know, uh, people didn't really understand that these were, you know, smartphones weren't really a thing. I'm trying to think back to when I got my iPhone and it must have been around then. I'm dating myself. But it, it's like the, the downstream demand signals weren't really there. And so now that we've had this groundswell, now that we're in 2023, with all of these commitments, not just from governments, but also from companies to, you know, electrify everything. And again, as I said, we're in this we're in this Jetsons moment. We're racing towards the future and anything with an on-off switch or uh, that's autonomous or connected, we're talking about 5G, they all require these same mineral materials as well. And so I I also think the other thing that has put a, a really keen focus on supply chains was, of course, the pandemic, which showed us just how dangerous concentrated supply chains for semiconductors in particular can be to our economy. And again, sort of the, the medium to long term, which we saw as the pandemic, you know, carried out and we're still seeing COVID spikes this summer. Um, And also, of course, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the war in Ukraine and how that has impacted, you know, how people reperceive energy security. And again, as as, you know, governments and companies are coming to realize that as they're making these commitments and these aren't we're not talking about small commitments, we're talking about billions of dollars in money and capital going toward, you know, retooling supply lines, uh, they're just realizing how vulnerable we are. Earlier this year, the European Union passed the Critical Raw Materials Act, which is aimed at making the EU self-reliant in in mining and processing and recycling of 34 critical metals and, and minerals. 
Should the U.S. pass similar legislation? Is this the right approach for us? You know, we can talk a little bit about how we're working together with the EU, because that's also part of our strategy. But I'm curious if you think that this kind of legislation is something that the U.S. should be doing. What I think the Critical Raw Materials Act in the EU does is it really sends a very strong signal that this is something that they're trying to take a strategic and coordinated approach to tackle. Um, You know, it sets some targets for the amount of material that they want produced within the European Union, processed within the European Union, recycled within the European Union. And, you know, these are all very admirable targets. But at the same time, what we need to understand is that Countries within the European Union and the United States, they're not the ones, the the countries are not the ones that are mining, the countries are not the ones that are processing. And so we can set targets all we want for mining and processing and recycling, but at the end of the day, it's our private sector industries that we need to convince to actually help us meet those targets. And so, you know, as I said, there's some utility in sort of laying out, you know, this is our strategic vision and this is what we want to do and throwing the weight of your government support behind it. But at the end of the day, it's really those those downstream market signals that we've seen as being the most influential and getting anybody sort of off the sidelines and doing the things that we want to do. And with that body, I'm I'm alluding to the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, because that really has been the largest earth shattering, you know, shake up in the market right now where companies really are. And again, deciding where to put their billions of dollars in capital so that they can get this very juicy carrot of these tax incentives. And so the market is responding to that. Private industries are beginning to locate their processing facilities, their battery manufacturing facilities within the United States and countries with which we share free trade agreements so that they can get at these these credits. So you know, we've taken sort of different approaches, I'd say slightly uh, within the EU and the United States. And, you know, our allies and friends in the EU and in Canada and other places are a little upset with the United States because of these incentives that we've given out. Um, but, you know, I, I would welcome and I think others would too, our allied countries and others implementing similar incentives. And we don't just want a race for subsidies because yes, in the end, we don't, we'll never be able to out China, China when it comes to subsidies. But, you know, perhaps there's some way that we could harmonize our incentives in a way that creates an economic incentive to source things from diverse places and outside of China, which I think that the Critical Raw Materials Act begins to get at, but maybe doesn't go quite as far as the Inflation Reduction Act. I also wanted to ask what you think of this Mineral Security Partnership, which is a coalition of 14 countries aimed at preventing our our, our rivals or adversaries or competitors from unfairly leveraging a market advantage in the critical minerals industry. And also, of course, at enhancing public and private investment in critical mineral supply chains globally. How is this coalition implementing its objectives? And maybe you can also offer some of your own thoughts on what else we might be doing that maybe we're not doing to incentivize private sector? Are there other things we should be doing, either just the United States or with our coalition partners? So the Mineral Security Partnership has really been the most 
visible belly button of the U.S. government to our international allies and even private industry stakeholders on, you know, rallying around uh, a more strategic approach to getting the mineral materials that we need for this transition. And so the the MSP has gone out, um, you know, it has uh, now 14 different countries, uh, which are members. Uh, India is the most recent addition to the MSP. But before India, uh, the majority of, and actually even with India, the majority of countries within the MSP are more consuming nations of these mineral materials rather than producing nations, which has been, you know, a predominant critique of the MSP. Um, they've asked, you know, its member countries to uh, submit uh, different deposits and things, uh, projects that it should be investing in around the world in order to diversify the supply of these mineral materials. And it's it also has a goal of making sure that, you know, all of these projects are done in a way that is environmentally responsible, upholds high labor standards and, you know, community standards as well. Um, the issue that they're running into is the same issue that we discussed with the European Critical Raw Materials Act and that, you know, these governments, the U.S. government and the governments of all the MSP countries can identify all of the projects and the deposits that it wants. But at the end of the day, it's not these countries that are going to be developing these these deposits and developing these projects. And so what they're really needing to do is to attract the, the private companies to these projects and a attract the private capital to these projects. And it's just a very difficult thing to do when you're talking about standing up whole industries in places where they historically are not happening. Um, these are very capital intensive industries. And they're also industries that re require a lot of expertise that quite frankly, you know, some of these countries have, but a lot of them do not. And so I'd say that the next chapter for the MSP is trying to engage private industry. You know, um, Undersecretary Jose Fernandez has said that um, on many occasions, uh, they have their next ministerial meeting in London where they're going to, you know, hoping to be focusing on deal making. And so, so, you know, I would hope that, again, that the initiatives or, you know, not initiatives, laws like the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, are creating those incentives for private capital to get off the sidelines. But um, I think it will take, you know, a much more concerted effort among the auto forward countries that are also MSP countries like Japan and Korea um, and also Germany and others to say, you know, uh, to create some sort of incentive so that they're downstream users of these materials, you know, their, their auto sector, that they actually have to buy the more responsibly produced projects and materials that the MSP have, have identified. Because if not, then they're just, you know, uh, companies say they want to diversify their supply chains. Companies say that they would like to, you know, have high standards throughout their supply chains. But in many instances, when push comes to shove, they're trying to sell a product. Consumers may also say that, you know, they want the more environmentally responsible thing. But at the end of the day, consumers also want the cheap thing. And unfortunately for us, the cheap thing is what has gotten us into this problem in the first place, Chinese overdependence. We've been talking with Abigail Wolf, who is vice president and director of the Ambassador Alfred Hoffman Jr. Center for Critical Mineral Strategy at SAFE, Securing America's Future Energy. Thanks so much for joining the China Global Podcast, Abby. 
Thank you so much, Bonnie. It's been a great chat.